Welcome to I Am, I Have. I'm Lucy Donoghue and this podcast is brought to you by Happiful Magazine, Counselling Directory and the Happiful app, which allows you to find help in your local area and read the magazine on the go for free. On this podcast, we speak with wonderful people and find out more about who they are and the passions that shape their lives, as well as their reflections on their own mental health and wellbeing. Today, we're going to be talking to Leanne Perot, community entrepreneur, breast cancer survivor, founder of the Movement Factory and of Black Women Rising. I knew I had to do something about it. I didn't see any girls my age or the the same colour skin as me going through cancer. I would have probably have felt a little bit more normal knowing that I had other people to look to because I felt like I was the only black girl with cancer. Thanks so much to Leanne for chatting with us. We're so grateful for her time and all the work she does. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to share that Counselling Directory has over 18,000 therapists listed across the UK, ready to work with you online, over the phone and face-to-face when the time is right. The directory also has a wide range of articles, helpful information and further signposting should you need it. Visit counselling-directory.org.uk to find out more. Now, back to Leanne. We discuss a wide range of topics today, including sexual abuse and trauma from cancer diagnosis. So please be aware if this is something that may trigger you at this time. And please share your thoughts using the hashtag I am, I have, and rate and leave us a review if you appreciate what you hear. It helps others to find us and we read every comment you post. Today on I Am, I Have, we're talking to Leanne Perrault, award-winning entrepreneur, breast cancer survivor, author, mentor, and founder of Black Women Rising, and much, much more. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you for having me, Lucy. We're going to start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what we should know about you and the many, many things that you do. (laughs) I'll try my best. But as Lucy said, I'm Leanne Perrault. I am a 35-year-old breast cancer survivor, but I'm also an entrepreneur. I've penned my first book, in 2016 and I'm just a community advocate everything I do is just to honor and serve my community that's basically it in a nutshell (laughs) I love the fact that you've compressed all of that quite so much when I have five pages of notes here so um... I think that's the best way for me to describe my work because it is so community driven you know and I think you know, yes, I do lots of things that are entrepreneurial, but again, they're very much community driven as well. So being a community entrepreneur and a community advocate, that's the best way I can describe everything that I do. Well, let's kick off then with that, because that's Mm -hmm. your first I am, which is Mm -hmm. I am an entrepreneur. And Mm -hmm. tell us about that. And perhaps let's start at the beginning. Well, I think it's got to go back just a little bit because I was sadly a victim of child sexual abuse by a very close family friend and so I was abused from the ages of 10 to 13 and when I finally spoke up about it it really divided my family because this guy was a huge staple part of our family's everyday life and I ended up going to move in with my father who I was quite estranged from at 13 years old so I became quite an adult overnight really Mm. at a time when I shouldn't have been And it was such a difficult time to process such a huge thing happening to me, plus the legalities of that as well, dealing with the police, the social services and everything else like that. I was really, really, from what I know now as an adult, was just really depressed. Um, And dancing was something that I'd picked up from 11 years old. um, And I continued that 
and I found if it wasn't for dance, dance saved me. There were so many things about dance that really saved me. It wasn't just the expression and the art, but it was community connection of going to dance every single week, having that when everything else in my life was falling apart, having that regular class of dance and having the team building skills and working with people and creating this performance and enjoying being able to enjoy um, the art of dance. And I think for me, by the time I got to 15 and I was doing quite a lot of stuff dance wise, what I really liked the idea of was teaching, you know, that was my specialism was teaching others as well. And because I had this newfound added input of how much dance had helped me, it almost became sort of entwined, you know, so many people were relating to the things that I was doing and saying in regards to teaching. Um, I was able to connect with people that were going through really difficult times. So I was really good at introducing people to dancing. Um, so quite naively, that's how my business started at 15 was because I started some classes, you know, at my local youth centre, was paid six pounds an hour, you know, at the time and uh, was given the opportunity to run a couple of classes a week. And I just remember they were all packed and busy and had waiting lists and you know, people were just hooked and really, really loved them. And I think from there, my freelance career grew from teaching dance, you know, at a really young age. So while everybody else was off at college and planning university, I went to dance college. But at the same time, I was working, you know, and teaching. And I didn't necessarily have to go to university because I had a field of opportunities. It was just so purposeful, you know, it just came to me. And it sounds like something that was born out of a necessity at that time in your life became a a mission and a purpose as well as your passion and you also used your personal experience in another way of helping people and expressing that through writing it's it's so funny because um I look back in the book sometimes and I cringe because when I read it now you know that was only five years ago when I read it now I'm always like, oh my God, I just don't relate to it at all. But I know why I I done it and I know where it came from. I went through quite a bad spell in my 20s of PTSD. I'd never gotten professional help with the sexual abuse case. I'd never got offered anything. And I struggled as an adult to build fulfilling relationships, to build relationships, you know, to even express myself properly with human beings, trust. I had all these issues going around, but also having terrible, terrible flashbacks and nightmares of a lot of what happened. And that was happening, you know, really in my early 20s, 25, up until 25, 26. And um, it was when I split up with my um, long-term partner. So I was with him for 10 years, so 17 to, to almost 27. I went through really bad depression and it wasn't just the breakup of the relationship and losing someone and grieving for someone I'd been with all that time, but it was also the offset of having to deal with what happened and looking back at that. And it was when I went to the counsellor that someone, you know, turned around and said, listen, please speak to this person because you need it. You need some extra help. It was when I went into the, to, to that person's office and they said, that we're touching the surface talking about the partner that you've just lost let's talk about the beginning and where this started and what I now know was I was having terrible PTSD and actually I'd, I'd suffered with it so much throughout all of my teens and 20s my dance career um, as a dancer stopped when I was 19 because I used to get terrible terrible stage fright and no one understood it 
you know, I was a great dancer. I was really, um, you know, I was at the top of my game teaching wise, you know, I was great in class. I was doing really well in college, but I couldn't perform, you know, I would get terrible uh, nervousness, but it wasn't just nervousness. There was a whole feeling behind that. And again, all of these things was like, oh my God, I've discovered it's PTSD as I started to do lots more counseling, a lot more self-help reading as well. And so the book was written out of when I was going through that time. And it took from when I was 27, when I wrote that, to when I was 30, to actually even pluck up the courage to share what I wrote on the book. And the book was almost like, okay, I'm turning 30. I've gone through depression. I've gone through um, loss. I've gone through uh, sexual abuse. I've gone through almost, you know, the company almost bankrupting me when we left one of our massive contracts. So I went through all this stuff and I was like, right, you know, I want to move on with my life post 30. Um, and I, and I want to be able to give back as I always do and sort of inspire people. So the book was, you know, like an 18 to 30 year old kind of Bibles, do this and do that. There's little tasks and spaces for people to write and express themselves in the book, you know, and it was all that inspiration from all the other little self-help books that I'd read through this really tough time. Obviously I, I released the book and, um, I wasn't able to go on any promotion. I remember having interviews lined up and promotion lined up because two weeks after I, I released the book, my mum got diagnosed with cancer. And then obviously a couple of months later, I was diagnosed. So it never got the push that it really needed to get out there. It still touches me to today, people buying this book. Like every now and again, I'll get like a, little, a little thing from Amazon saying, yep, yeah, you know, we're paying your little royalties. And I'm like, who's buying this book? <laughs> Well, I was reading some of the reviews and, you know, it's, it's helping people. And that's, yeah, it is, that's yeah. wonderful because it's almost like you, it was part of your processing of what was happening. Absolutely. But everything Absolutely. you say, it seems like everything that you experience yourself, dark moments yeah. of, of sexual abuse. We're mm -hmm. going to talk about being diagnosed with cancer in a moment. Mm -hmm. Everything you do, you, it seems that you want to work that into a positive way that you can help others. Absolutely as well as helping yourself and that that book is just one example as is the positive planner the positive yes. day planner that you've done yes. you just you have this wonderful way of of taking what seems like the most destructive moments yeah. and and turning them into something positive is that something you've worked on or is it something that's come natural? oh god not natural no worked on yes everything requires work and mindset when I went through that really, really difficult time in my 20s, you know, 27, when I was going through that, for me, it was allowing myself to look back and review almost my life so far. What are my strong points? What are my weaknesses? What can I work on? And how am I going to work on it? After one counselling session, when um, I was talking to the counsellor and they were like, yeah, and it would help if you, you know, did a little bit, you know, the self-work. You really need to start the self-work journey. And I remember going, how do I start the self-work journey? What do I do? And they were like, you've got to find your way. And I was like, how do I do that? Yeah. And that's the question I still get asked by many people today. And I say to people, you've got to find what really works for you. So for me, one of the things that I found I had to start was a daily, almost a daily spiritual ritual so to speak I call it a daily spiritual practice and it's not necessarily that it's spiritual it's just that 
that's my hour of time or half an hour or on the most busiest days, five minutes. I've got to find that time where I do me, you know, and for me, what that included was giving gratitude for small things. So, you know, someone told me about gratitude lists. I tried it and it worked for me. You know, there are things that many people have suggested to me and haven't worked. <laughs> you know, someone's yeah. suggested get up every morning and do half an hour yoga. I love yoga, but I'm sorry. The first thing, me getting out of my bed, I just don't, when it's cold and freezing, I, I just don't want to do it. It's so it doesn't gonna, work. It's not going to work. No. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> but, um, you know, the gratitude really works. For me, praying every morning really, really works. It really centers me. Having that time just having some quiet time listening to like really calming music really helps me in the mornings to kind of center myself and I think for me I found my way of of working on myself another thing that really helped me work on myself was through the gratitude lists was really realizing out of the really tough situations I was going through how actually fortunate I was and I think that that's shaped my life very much till today and answers the question you asked in regards to how am I able to turn things into a positive? You know, when I was going through terrible, terrible times, particularly when I was ill, you know, it was actually like, actually, I do feel ill, but I'm really, really thankful for another day on this earth because I know so many people don't get that. I'm thankful that I have a warm bed and a, a roof over my head. I'm thankful that I've got family and friends that love me even though when I was at my most deepest and darkest hours many people abandoned me but I still had one or two people that cared and loved me and it really centering yourself like that and actually just really looking for things to be thankful for and I always say a minimum of 10 that one thing has really really shaped very much my life today and all the things that I do and have in it and who I am as a person and that's a wonderful practice, the practice of yeah. gratitude. And also, I just wanted to touch upon, you talked about anxiety, and I know yeah. that it's something that you, you say you struggled with, especially yeah. around 19, and it stopped you dancing. Mm -hmm. How did you address that anxiety? Because some people listening will be thinking, you've achieved so much, mm -hmm. and that that's not feasible for them because they live with anxiety. What oh, would you God. say to that? I live with anxiety, unfortunately. It wasn't what was to become apparent after almost going through a period of feeling like, yes, the world is my oyster was that it was going to make a return. And, you know, I live with anxiety day to day. Um, and again, it was about making time to center myself every day. But one of my anxieties every day that I deal with in the time now is the, the anxiety that I'm not going to die because I was so close to losing my life. It was three years on and the trauma of that has not left. I used to always say, God, I don't want to get emotional here, but I, I always say that um, one of the toughest things I think for any cancer patient is that worry that the cancer is going to come back and kill you. Honest to God, I sometimes measure my most successful days are when I don't have to think about that. How have I overcome it? Honest to God, it is that practice of gratitude. Yoga, really, despite the fact I won't get up in the morning and do it at six o'clock, <laughs> but doing maybe two to three classes of yoga a week 
also really helped to the point that when I stopped doing yoga, I found it really returned, but it helped normalize my breathing and just produce just really good, happy thoughts. And to the point that I always say to people, don't have to go to like a sweaty yoga class or one of the classes that are really energetic, but getting yourself to even like a restorative yoga class, like a really slow paced class um, where you can really feel the benefits of the yoga and the poses, like it really, really helps. So I'm just really mindful of being kind to myself as well, you know, being really kind to myself and because I've, I've lived a life being really hard on myself. And these are the things that have really helped me now know the people I can go to to say, listen, I'm suffering with it. Many people don't understand, but I have my time. And that's why it's so important for people to have their time to themselves, where they can check in with themselves. And what you just said about kind of learning from your anxiety I think is something that we hear from quite a lot of people who are working continually on anxiety mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. listening to when it comes back in mm -hmm. and trying to understand where that's coming from what is yes. it trying to tell you yeah. your anxiety is trying to tell you either you're overwhelmed you're tired or yeah. that there's something that you're not addressing yeah addressing right, that you really need to and also I think it's very very important to point out to people one of the things that's really helped me is talking to a therapist every week I talk to a therapist and I've actually normalized the fact that because of the things that have happened to me I'm going to probably be in therapy for life that has really helped there's times like for example last month I couldn't talk to her one week because I was so busy I couldn't talk to her for the whole of the month but again it's like okay well she's a staple part of my life now and I'm going to be talking to her all the time so having that there was also something that helped me and there's nothing wrong with being able to rationalize stuff with somebody I, I just found that so many people around me didn't understand so talking to this person has really helped me almost uh, validate how I feel and I and that's through me talking she doesn't she rarely talks back in that sense but it it was a, it's a safe space for me to be able to talk away from family and friends and to somebody who um, allows me the space to talk about it and rationalize maybe why did I have really bad anxiety last week how am I going to move forward with the week ahead sometimes I don't have all the answers because sometimes I don't know but I don't beat myself up over that and what you said about normalizing being with a counselor mm. and I wondered if you could talk about that in terms of you yeah. said your family and friends didn't understand yeah. what was their reaction to or perhaps you don't want to talk about their reaction to but what was the general consensus about mm. counseling when you were growing up or in your 20s mm. and do you feel like you're still challenging that now absolutely because I think in the in the definitely the black community as a, as a whole you know these there's stigmas around I think even talking out about anything because you grew up in cultures that, you know, it's not just black. I know in the Asian community, it's the same in regards to keeping your business to yourself. You know, don't talk about it outside of these four walls. We talk about everything and we deal with everything in the home. So talking about your traumas and talking about your life or, or even, you know, talking about the family's business to someone else, it's seen as almost like a betrayal. And these are ancient, sort of myths and taboos that have followed generations for years and I think now people are normalizing it but still there's still a massive stigma about speaking out you know it worries me that so many people still refuse to get extra help 
when they need it or are so blasé about how they feel that they don't even know how to even um, even express themselves or talk about anything, you know. And as a result, they're not leading life to the way that they should be living life. And that creates a whole different problem in itself of all the things that we have to deal with now in this difficult time you've seen what this year's done all yeah. the added extra pressures of life that were not the same 50 30 years ago <laughs> even 20 years ago when i started my dance company you know life wasn't as it was now with these day-to-day pressures we need to find our ways our extra ways of dealing with stuff because the ways our parents and our grandparents dealt with things then is not the same of how it's going to be now so we have to start normalizing these things because they're going to become more prevalent. What I found with my counselor is I'm able to talk about these things as well because it's my safe space to be able to do that. And that's the wonder of counseling mm. is that it's a space for you to talk about what you need to talk about yeah. without having to engage in a dialogue that makes it safe for the other person. Absolutely. And it's absolutely confidential. I think that's one of the mm-hmm. things that we perhaps don't talk about enough is the confidentiality factor. So when people are worried about you don't talk about family business outside mm-hmm. the family, mm-hmm. that's not going anywhere else. That's, no. that's staying with you and that counsellor or therapist. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that because every single person that talks about it affects another person who will think about actually absolutely. reaching out and having help. So I really thank you for that. No, you are welcome. So your next I am leads on, which is I am a survivor. Tell us in your own words what being a survivor is. Definitely, I would say being a survivor of sexual abuse. I think that comes first. But definitely more to where I'm at now is being a survivor of breast cancer, which I had four years ago at 30 years old. And this was just after you'd, obviously, you'd written your book. Yes. So this was after I'd written a book. And then my mum got diagnosed with breast cancer for the second time two weeks after. So that was in February 2000 and more well, March 2016. And then I was diagnosed with breast cancer October 2016. So, yeah, I remember being told at the time, you've got better chance of winning the lottery than having cancer at your age. That's what I was told by one of the consultants, would you believe? <laughs> but yeah, completely shell-shocked. I can imagine. I was stage three, so I had to have both breasts removed. I had to have eight rounds of chemo. So I was basically just giving everything because of my age. Was, everything was thrown at me. I ended up having, um, yeah, all my, you know, I lost all my hair and everything. Uh, they they offered me fertility treatment to freeze my eggs, but I refused. Well, I didn't refuse they, they, because of how much anxiety I had. It wasn't an option for me. It completely shattered my world. I had never felt as bad as I did for three months. And it wasn't because of the chemo. The chemo, would you ever believe when I tell you, the chemo was a walk in the park. (laughs) I was not very ill. And a lot of people you start to meet and talk to that have had chemo, they'll tell you the drugs are very good these days. You know, it wasn't that. But in terms of how I felt in myself, can you imagine being told that you had cancer and then all of these things you had to take in that one meeting I had to obviously stop work for a year so I had to take a year out so that's financially yeah. draining but also being told you know you're gonna have almost six to eight months of chemo 
you will lose your hair, you know, all of this sort of stuff you have to kind of take in. But I think the big thing for me, which was was huge, was that they said to me, we want to, because we don't know how long it's been there. We don't know how long the tumour's been there. So we want to do some scans to see if it spread around the body. And I remember believing at the time, I didn't, when I went in for my results after they'd done tests and stuff, I honestly thought I was going to walk out of there with maybe just a little slap on the wrist to say, look, it's not cancer, but, you know, be vigilant and maybe lifestyle change a little bit and whatever. But no, you know, obviously (laughs) I got told I did. And I, honest to God, thought I was going to die. I was like, right, this is my time. And I remember telling my friends and everybody, and I said, I'm not going to be able to do this. I've done many things in life and I've gone through many things in life, but this is just one thing I cannot beat. That's how I felt for three months. Like I said, I absolutely, you know, you'd have to literally carry me to those scans because I couldn't, I had no resource bank in my, you know, I had nothing, no energy or anything. I stopped eating, so I didn't eat for nine days straight. I couldn't stomach anything because of the shock. I never really understood what anxiety and panic attacks were until those moments. Waking up in the night, absolutely drenched in sweat, convincing myself that I was going to die or having terrible nightmares. It was the worst experience I have ever felt if people say what was the worst the toughest time you've ever felt I'll be honest I'll say I've had some tough times but those three months from that day I was diagnosed with cancer were the worst you're sitting there at mercy of the doctors waiting for scans walking into the hospital waiting to hear whether it's spread whether what stage it's at whether your tumors have gone down absolutely horrendous you know, with the scans around the body, they came back and they said, well, look, we found something on your liver. We're going to have to investigate it further. And I think that that is the thing that really tipped me over the edge. And when I found out that actually, nope, it was nothing, it was all benign. And look, we're going to go ahead with this. You're going to be cured. And what cured? We're going to remove the tumour. You're going to be fine. I think for me, that's when I realised that I was going to, I was able to then do what I do best and turn things into a positive. And I aced it through chemo, went through, you know, had my bilateral mastectomy, mastectomy, and then said whoopee days, you know, got given the all clear June the 29th, 2017. um, And thought, yes, you know, I can start rebuilding my life again. But that's not what happens. Once you get given a cancer diagnosis, your life changes forever. And for me, everything changed. My friendship groups, I had a lot of people stop talking to me because they felt really, I don't know what it was. I'll be honest, some of them I still don't talk to now. Your body's not the same. I put on two stone, pumped with these drugs, the strongest drugs you probably could ever imagine going into your body. You, You know, you lose your hair. That takes a long time to grow back. You know, for me, I still don't know if I'm, if I have, you know, enough eggs there to produce children. I don't know any of those things. So the recovery from cancer has been absolutely immense not just physically physically you know cancer particularly breast cancer will rob you of majority of things that society in this day and age tell you make you a woman if it goes a young woman and a woman that's not married yet or hasn't found her partner or hasn't had children cancer robs those things away from you but mentally you're given the all clear and and you think oh okay yeah everything's great it is not suicidal thoughts were the norm for me that I remember that was when it made me realize that I needed to get some help 
because I couldn't normalize my life. I did not know where I was going. I didn't know who I was. My thoughts and feelings weren't the same. And I did not know how I was going to recover. And I didn't know what my life was going to be. And as a result of that, my relationships were strained. I fell out with people, people who were helping me through cancer. I fell out with, because I think in their own way, they thought, well, why are you not being the normal person now? We've helped you. Come on, get back to the old Leanne type of thing or lots of different things. And I, I couldn't make sense of that. They wanted to bounce back. Yeah. There you are. And yeah. that never came. That recovery from cancer, no one tells you about either. No one says once you get given the all clear, things are going to be difficult. No one says that. For me, that's, that's the one thing that I've really, really, really struggled with. Um, and that's why my work exists today. And before we move on to your work, because, because I want to talk about the amazing what you do, I just wanted to stay with that for a moment. Because a lot of what we see, and obviously the black community is not represented no. within a lot of the advertising that we see about yeah. cancer charities. Yeah. But a lot of what we see is about this kind of journey from illness to wellness yeah. and how we can move beyond and how we can beat cancer, you know, those kind, yeah. that kind of rhetoric. Yeah. And actually, if you're, if you're at the point of diagnosis where you were, where there's a lot of waiting around for help mm -hmm. and support, mm -hmm. or you don't see any help for your age group or, mm -hmm. or for what you're going through in that time, mm -hmm. that is a trauma. And, and I think for you to be able to talk about that and say, it's hard mm -hmm. is actually helpful yeah. because it's the realism that we don't see no. from the outside. Not at all. Within the black community as well, you have this added extra. Um, and I'm not going to say, oh, you know, compared to the black community, people's cancer journeys are different. It's not that. It, it was one thing I found coming from quite a mixed race upbringing anyway myself. I was quite shocked when I connected with people on my ward. Some of the stories of some of the things they'd been told by family members, even me losing so many friends and receiving horrific messages from people when I was going through cancer, just things like, I know what caused your cancer, it's your drinking. Um, I remember being told by somebody, um, you know, black people don't get cancer. Um, and because my mum is mixed race, they said, oh, it must be the white gene. But also, you know, all these um, messages from people saying, oh, you know, don't take chemo. Uh, here's the juice recipe that you can take that's going to cure you of your cancer and it's like whoopee days you know whatever and those are so offensive and so unhelpful because what it does is it makes you feel that you're to blame how did I cause my cancer it must have been me you know when I started to talk to people in the ward similar stories but worse you know there was a young girl who was two years older than me so we really sort of became buddies and she said and she went and told her parents that she was going through cancer. The parents said, well, you didn't catch that from us. I don't know where you got that from. The shame and misinformation. Yeah, the shame and misinformation, which obviously is why the mortality rates for particularly uh, black and Asian women in, you know, cancer is particularly is very high because people don't go and get checked out. These conversations are not being normalized in the homes. So when people are going through cancer, because it's tough already, adding that other extra stress of all of these myths and taboos. And, and believe me, they, those are only a surface of the stories. 
most of these things are all being kept. People don't tell their parents or their friends or family that they're going through cancer. They just stay away and deal with it in silence. So for me, I couldn't walk away from that experience. Of all the other stuff that I've done in the community, it's very natural for me to think of a solution to problems, but I couldn't walk away from that experience and not do anything for my community. My oncologist, actually, she was spot on with me, actually, because on one of our parting um, appointments, she said, I need you to go out in your community and I need you to go and tell women in your community that the chemo's not that bad and that they should stop refusing the drugs. Because most people that walk in here refuse the drugs and say that their God's going to cure them and that they're going on some sort of diet and they end up dead. That was my call to action. And I was so shell-shocked by what she had said and the stories I heard. I knew I had to do something about it. And also just to create a space that I felt comfortable in as well. I, I, I went into, like you said, about not being represented. I didn't see any girls my age or the, the same colour skin as me going through cancer. I would have probably have felt a little bit more normal knowing that I had other people to look to because I felt like I was the only black girl with cancer. And that's why I want to switch our questions around a bit because we usually yeah. do I ams and then go yeah. to I have. Yeah. But I want to go to your I have now. I really want to hear how you change that around. Yeah. Your I have is I have used my experiences to create vital change for my community. Tell us everything. I had such a massive upbringing, but adults were very, um, I would say they weren't consistent in my life. And I picked up so many different things about their struggles. You know, I wasn't one of those kids that were told, I'm proud of you, I love you, or all that sort of stuff. So love to me was something I had to learn. And I had to unlearn some of those behaviours from some of the adults that were around me and meant to be in charge of my care. I had to unlearn so much of their yeah. example. Then going on to, to do the dance classes and realising that so many other teenage girls my age was going through exactly the same thing. Then going into depression as an adult, realising that so many adults were going through the same stuff that I was going through, made me realise the importance of using your experiences and just your lived experiences to connect with others, how important and powerful it is and how many lives you can change, but also through that change, heal yourself. It's helped me gain a completely different understanding of the perspective of life that so many people haven't. Me going through cancer, I know my thinking is completely different to many other people. And I'm really thankful for that. Cancer's taught me and given me this amazing tool to be able to go out and help so many other women. I just think there's, like I said, there's just something to be said about people empowerment, especially in this really difficult time where we're all at the mercy of, of government and people telling us what we need to do and people controlling what we do and where we go. I think people like myself, your podcast, there's something about people empowerment and people talking and living through their lived experiences, helping people. And I think that that's the way society can go and it can change lives. Tell us about Black Women Rising. So Black Women Rising came up um, from the stories I was telling you about, about all those women that are going through cancer having a really tough time. And when I realised that my hospital couldn't offer me the support I needed, I decided to kind of take matters in my own hands. And the journals I had written through cancer, I decided to publish them online. 
and actually come out to the community because I went into hiding when I went through cancer just I just couldn't deal with anything else you know I just kind of kept it to myself so when I decided to tell everybody that I had cancer I also released these blogs online Um, and a big UK national charity um, who run an amazing blog forum asked if they could put one of the blogs on their pages and they said oh you know we're going to let you know when it goes out and they didn't need to let me know when it went out because when it went out and was published on their page they put pictures up and things um, I got sort of contacted by so many women over the course of the next few weeks after that because so many women from my community saying it is so nice to see a brown black girl talking about cancer I've had cancer too the stories were horrific in some Mm. cases of some of the things that a lot of the women were going through and so what happened was um I sort of said to everyone, look, I can't keep consoling everybody one-to-one. You know, at one point, I was talking to about 14 women on the go. I'm going to rent the office out, my, my office meeting room out. And I said, I'm going to get my mum to bake some cakes. We'll have tea and coffee. Why don't we all get together? And I remember we had eight women that turned up. But in that eight women, I mean, we were there for hours and there wasn't like a dry eye left in the room. Everybody was in tears. For some people, it was their first time connecting talking about their cancer um, but just that familiar ground of feeling safe to talk this kind of sisterhood that's where the Black Women Rising project was born you know um, because it wasn't something that I could just do then it was something we had to continue and we called it I actually at the time just called it um, you know just a peer-to-peer support group it used to be called Eat Talk Connect because what it was was that we used to run them every month and then people used to bring food with them and we'd have like this massive spread and then we'd have like a sharing circle where people who wanted to talk about what they were going through um could talk and share their stories and that was really the heart and soul of the black women rising project it still is sorry the heart and soul of the project is our peer-to-peer support groups and they're now online but also what we needed to do which i felt was really important was to do things to empower women a lot of women, particularly within my culture, you know, we're used to being the, the homemakers, the women that put everyone else before themselves. So what was really apparent to me is more and more women were coming through the doors was that cancer was probably the first time many of them had taken a back seat to rest because of the cancer, yeah. but also look at themselves because they're too busy making sure the husband was okay, running the household, making sure the kids were okay, working, this kind of hard work ethic that's followed our cultures for generations and generations. And so for me, one of the things I really wanted to do was do more projects to empower these women because that's, that's me all over. Empowerment, women empowerment, come on, you know. So the idea of the Scars exhibition that we went on to do, the first one, was not only was it getting them to almost embrace their scars after cancer, a lot of them, for a lot of them, it was about looking at the scar for the first time in that way, but also allow them to tell their stories as well. And in a way that could educate our community. People say, how did you plan it? It wasn't planned. It was not that at all. It's just that I was about to finish my operation. And I said to my photographer, my friend, I said, can you take a picture of my breasts? Because I want to see them for the first time in all their glory. Obviously, I lost both of my breasts. I wanted to see what that looked like. You know, I had a complete nipple reconstruction, everything. So for me, I wanted to see and embrace what they were and what they had become. When she brought me back these portraits, I cried because they were black and white. They were elegant. They were powerful. 
And so I said, imagine if we could get maybe seven more women to take these pictures and we could put on a really nice exhibition. Well, that eight turned into 14 with a waiting list. Um, and it was from all walks of life. We've got women from all walks of life. And then we'd done an exhibition in, in Peckham, South London. Um, and probably about a week run up to the exhibition. The week before the exhibition, it went up, the project went absolutely viral. We ended up on all these news channels. We ended up on amazing blogs. So many people got involved and it was just an amazing project. Um, and so after that, our network grew. We got commissioned again, which is why we've been working with the Tate Gallery to put it on, uh, put on our second exhibition there. It was meant to be in May, now postponed to 2021. You know, we, we started obviously in lockdown um, a podcast. But for many years of starting Black Women Rising, which I started in 2017, my voice wasn't being heard. Um, I was talking to so many brands and charities about how they need to diversify their messaging and stuff and people were listening but not really mm. you know or I would get trolled particularly if I'd done something quite high profile I'd get trolled online oh you know she's got a chip on her shoulder she's making things up so as we came into lockdown what no one don't really know is that I almost closed down the charity because it became too stressful and I just thought I don't need this I do enough community work already I really don't need this added extra stress but then life was going to have other plans because we started the podcast very makeshift i looked a couple of youtubes and thought i knew how to make a podcast Listen, i think it sounds great <laughs> okay good perfect because yeah that was that was a, a tricky one but it was a really good podcast and, and so many people really loved it but it was such an innovative idea as well to come out of just giving the women that weren't no longer doing the Tate Gallery just a platform to tell their stories at least because it all geared themselves up to tell their stories at this amazing venue I mean, and then, and then obviously mid-podcast, the Black Lives Matter movement came into play. I think for the first couple of weeks of Black Lives Matter, I spent the weeks in tears because it felt like for the first time in this country, I'd felt comfortable talking about my stories of injustice and racism. And I was going to be listened to, not accused of having a chip on my shoulder or lying or making things up. But it was the first time we were actually being allowed to talk in our truths and be honest where people wanted to listen with open ears. A lot of people were angry at that in many different sectors. It's like, why is it taking this long and whatever? But for me, there was no anger attached to it. It's just that finally. Yeah. Now that we've been given this platform, let's continue to tell our truths. And obviously, we also, because it was COVID, many other charities closed their doors we were popular, we started to be popular than ever before. More and more people were coming forward wanting help, support, joining the support group, asking so many questions and inquiries. So for us, as a small charity, um, we decided to reach out to many sort of brands and charities and things and say, look, we want to put together the very first publication magazine almost like an annual magazine for women of color going through cancer or survived cancer because that can then become almost like their bible from the beginning of a cancer diagnosis right to the not the end but you know the beginning mm -hmm. throughout their cancer journey even if they're 10 years post-treatment they can pick that up and say i'm struggling can i get some help and it was great we managed to raise loads of money to put together this publication we ended up with a 200 page glossy magazine beautiful thank you and it obviously we launched it on the Lorraine show which was fantastic because we got so many people contacting us around that and it's just 
changed lives you know so many people were like look if this was around when i was going through cancer i say it to myself if this was around when i was going through cancer i would have no problem <laughs> you know what? and that's interesting because the thought that i just had was when you when you talked about yourself getting the diagnosis if yeah. someone when you were waiting in the waiting yeah. room to talk to someone if someone had given you a copy of that Oh, the journey would have been different, wouldn't it? It really would have. And that's what we're getting now is messages from lovely people um, up and down, actually the UK, getting our magazine and saying, gosh, this is helping. What a great read, you know. We also managed to do this amazing thing with loads of brands where we were able to gift loads of goodie boxes to people going through cancer. So we, we managed to get these amazing goodie boxes created and we sent them all out the messages we got back people just saying oh my god wow this has really cheered me up having a really awful day at chemo this has cheered me up and it made me think I've basically created something that I wish I had when I was going through cancer and that makes me really proud and brings me so much joy I'm, I'm glad you're proud of yourself because you should be yeah. and <laughs> I encourage everyone to to check it out and to support yeah. in any they can and we're going to flip back to your I am your yeah. final I am which is a really good place for us to kind of end which is yeah. I am tenacious because mm -hmm. you are tenacious <laughs> yeah I was trying to find a word that could talk about when I get hold of an idea <laughs> I don't let it go yeah <laughs> I continue if I get a mission or an idea that sums me up in a nutshell. I think that is the one spirit of mine that I don't know where it's from. Maybe it's from my grandmother. I think I was gifted that she was very tenacious. I think that that is definitely something I've inherited from her. When you've got a cause or something that's really important to you, go and do it. It'll make it, make it, make it work somehow. And I think that that is definitely something that can't be taught. I think that that's something that's just naturally in you. And, and I think that that's kind of, enabled me to be able to do everything else that I've been able to do I'm fueled by just passion um, and everything that I see and I also don't believe in putting limits on life as well that's the one thing I don't believe I think people like to box park themselves into small things and if it works for you it works for you but I just think if you want to go and do something go and do it because if you're going to fail at it you can fail there's nothing wrong with failure I've tried many ideas they haven't worked but there was many things that I have done that have really worked. You get one life. This isn't a dress rehearsal. This life isn't. Go and yeah. do it. And if it doesn't work, who cares? <laughs> we ask people if they could meet themselves in 10 years time. Yes. What do they hope their 10 years older yeah. self would say to them if they could give them words of reassurance? Mm -hmm. What do you hope Leanne in 10 years time would say to Leanne right now? You're fine as you are. You're right where you need to be, where you are. You don't need to be doing anything more or anything less. You are fine where you are and just relax. I think after all the things I've gone through, it's created, as I've said, a real sense of anxiety, a real sense of worrying about the future all the time. One of my biggest anxieties is around, am I going to die soon? Am I going to live? This is something that I battle with every day in my head. Definitely when I, when I, when I knew this was going to be a question was... was it was around just the art of saying you are right where you need to be. Do not put any pressure on yourself to be anything more. And, and I suppose in a sense, that's just being mindful, right? Mindfulness. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Leanne. 
Thank you, Lucy. If you'd like to find out more about Leanne, follow her on Instagram at Leanne Perot Official. Check out the movementfactory.uk.com, blackwomenrisinguk.org, and her book is called Take Control of Your Life. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, brought to you by Counseling Directory and Happiful Magazine. As always, please rate, review and share if you like what you hear. And if you'd like to read more about mental health and well-being, visit the App Store and download our Happiful app so you can read our magazine on the go as well as finding out about therapy, well-being and other support in your area. You can find more information about online counselling and therapists at counselling-directory.org.uk. And if you need to speak to someone immediately, the Samaritans are available 24 hours a day on 116123. And you can also email joe at samaritans.org. Help is available. This podcast has been produced by Happiful. We hope you'll join us again soon.